Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today, encourage us today, challenge us today, that you would remind us that you are with us, that you would remind us that we are even now being changed. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Uh, years ago now, there was a radio report about a unique problem in a middle school in Oregon. A number of the girls all began using lipstick around the same time, and they all would put on the lipstick in the bathroom, and after they all put on the lipstick in the bathroom, they then pressed their lips to the mirrors, leaving dozens of little lip prints all over the mirrors, and it created a mess. Of course, the teachers and the administration did what you do. Everyone was told, don't do that. There were new rules that were created. New punishments were restated. But it just kept happening. And so finally, the principal came up with a, with a more creative solution. She called all the girls into the bathroom and she met them there with the custodian. She explained that the lip prints were causing a major problem for the custodian who had to clean all the mirrors every day, and it was a lot of extra and unnecessary work. And then in order to demonstrate how difficult it was, she asked the custodian to show them how much work it took to clean just one of the mirrors. And so he took out his long-handled brush, and he dipped it in the toilet, and he scrubbed the mirror clean. And the radio report concluded, since then, there's been no prints on any of the mirrors. Sorry, that was a little gross, but I think it illustrates the point well. There are different ways to keep us from sin, to help us when we're tempted. There are rules and punishments and consequences, and those work fine. Or you can try harder. You can avoid temptation. You can put in more safeties. Better still is when we want something more than what it is that we're being tempted by. If we could make temptation less. What if the key to sinning less isn't a function so much of trying harder, but what if it's actually about wanting better more? What if there could be a deeper change on our insides that then simply becomes a purer life on our outsides? In other words, instead of trying to change the type of fruit that our less good inner life produces, what if we could change that inner life and then naturally produce better fruit. That's not to say that's easy, but it's better. And what's more, it may be also who we have been called to be. And so let's turn to our series now and see if we can't learn something. In our Lenten series, we are looking at the person of David, who was known as a man after God's own heart. And as we've been talking about, that happens on two different levels. David is both aligned with and aimed towards God's heart. 
So aligned with is the first one. David's heart takes after God's heart, is built the same way, feels the same things, is passionate about the same purposes, the same kind of hearts. And then David's heart is also aimed towards God's heart. And so he loves God, longs for God, pursues God, follows after God. And as we think about both of these, we recognize that our hearts could be more aligned with and could be more aimed towards God's heart. But we may need to reset and even reorder our loves such that God has a greater gravitational pull for our hearts. And so as we get started on this, I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, as we fast forward the story a little bit more. David is now king. David is now doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's being the king he's been called to be until today, that is. So we're going to read chapter two or chapter 11, 1 through something, and then we'll stop for a bit, and then we'll read a little bit more toward the end. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a beautiful uh, woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to, to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And we're going to stop there for a moment. <clears throat> not one of David's better moments, but let us not be too quick to judge. Because whether these are your sins or not, they all share the same characteristics of all of our sins. 
But before we get into that, let's just make sure we're noticing a couple of things. As the passage begins, David is not where he's supposed to be. This is the season when kings go off to war. David's army is out there doing their job. The Ark of the Covenant is in a tent somewhere, but David is not out there with them. He has stayed at home. And this isn't because he doesn't know how to fight. If anything, he may have the most experience and skill as a strategist and as a fighter. So if he were there, he would bring something to the fight, but for whatever reason, he is not where he's supposed to be. And that's when the trouble begins, as it often does, when we're not where we're supposed to be, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. It seems to start out innocently enough. Most likely, no one is doing anything overtly wrong. David just has a sleepless night. But then it spirals and spirals and spirals, and soon David has gone from the wrong place at the wrong time to fully plotting out and executing the murder of an innocent man. What happened? I mean, if you were reading this quickly and you accidentally skipped verses 2 through 13, you would assume that there was some mistake. How could David be trying to kill Uriah, one of David's mighty men, one of his most loyal and faithful subjects? And yet that is the slow and seductive nature of sin. We're looking for or seeking out or longing for something, but we find lesser ways to pursue these desires, and these lesser ways never end up being enough which create much larger problems because we keep going. We keep going after these wrong solutions farther and farther and farther, and we end up too far from where we started. I want to feel a little bit of pleasure, a little bit of joy, a little bit of comfort. There's, I have this desire inside of me, and so I, I shave just a bite off the edge of the leftover cake on the counter. Because I would like to feel some measure of satisfaction, some measure of joy, some measure of comfort. And you know where I could find that? Cake. Which was good. But it wasn't enough. So I'm going to get one more. It's, it's important here. I don't want to eat a full slice of cake. That would be ridiculous. It's the middle of the day. That would be inappropriate. So I just have that one little, pe- the one little slice, just the, the one big bite put the knife, the fork in the dishwasher, go about my day. Until a couple minutes later, I find myself back in the kitchen. I didn't set out to go to the kitchen. I just needed to put the glass away, and I was bringing it back to the kitchen. And the next thing I know, there's another little sliver of cake in my hand. That's weird and delicious. And then again a little later, and then again a little later, and then again in the late, a little later. And now I'm noticing there's not much cake left. What's more... I don't feel any pleasure, any comfort, any joy, any satisfaction. If anything, I now feel guilty. I feel shame. I feel the mild tummy ache. How does that happen? I never sought out the goal of eating a lot of cake. In fact, that was explicitly what I was trying not to do. I could have just gotten myself a slice of cake, but that, that I don't want a slice of cake. But now there's a lot of cake missing, and I'm worse off than I was before. 
All that to say, in some ways, that's the situation David finds himself in, though obviously a lot worse. Let's get back to our story and fast forward a bit. Because David's dastardly plan is carried out flawlessly, he is the strategist that he always has been, and Uriah ends up dead. So let's start back up in chapter 11, verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord said to Nathan, sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Amen. Just to tell you what happens next, it's at this point, obviously, that David turns around. He repents. He turns back toward God. Thankfully, God sends Nathan. Nathan wisely tells David a story to kind of get under his defenses the rich man, the poor man, the ewe lamb. The rich man takes the poor man's prize and joy. And just as David's righteous anger flares up, Nathan drops the hammer down. You are that man. And David is, is struck, spun back toward God and starts getting back on track again. Now, that's not to say that there won't be consequences that play out even in chapter 12 uh, that will continue to come as there always are and often continue to be. But David starts going back to who he was before as he recognizes and pursues God's presence again. But for us, let's try and figure out what we can learn from all of this. What does David do wrong and how do things get restored back to right? Because in some ways, all of this starts because David isn't living as God has called him to live, which causes David to lose his focus and his way. He stops paying attention to God. He stops aiming toward God. He stops being aligned 
with God's heart. If anything, he starts to act more like Saul. And so let's take a deeper look at what's so strange about David's focus. As we look at where it normally is, where it is right now, before trying to figure out what this has to do with us. And if you've been with us through this series thus far, or even if you've ever read the story of David, there's something very different about this story than in all the others. David makes his mistakes. That happens all throughout these stories. But this story is different. And that's because God doesn't seem to feature in chapter 11 at all. David just seems to be completely unaware of God. He's almost oblivious and ambivalent towards God. It's like he's hiding from God or at least ignoring God. Up to this point, everything David does is a function of God's promptings. David is always listening for God, looking for God, longing for God. When David fights Goliath, it's because he's looking at God, and in God's kingdom, giants just don't seem very significant or substantial. When David is about to lead an attack, he always asks God first, should I go attack them now? Yes, you should. Should I go attack them now? No, you shouldn't. You should wait and go around. Okay, I will. When he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe, the Lord forbid that I should have done such a thing. And as he confronts Saul shortly thereafter, the Lord will judge between us. Last week, I have a house. God doesn't have a house. I should build God a house. David is always living in the presence of God. David is always moving within the presence of God. David is always aware of God. Until today. Until this story where David isn't looking at or for or towards God at all. Which, for David, is strange. And which, in other ways, is the very nature of sin. If the good news is that God has come near to be with us, then sin is the act of pulling away, of putting space in between us and God again. And this is the larger issue we see in this passage. Even right there at the beginning, when kings go off to war, and we find David sending Joab and God's army out to fight the Ammonites, but David remains in Jerusalem. Right off the, the bat, we, we get the sense that something is not right. There's somewhere David's supposed to be, something he's supposed to be doing, someone he's supposed to be, and for whatever reason, he's not. And let's note that we don't know why. It may be for a good reason. It may seem like it's for a good reason. But David is supposed to be one kind of king, one kind of person, deeply aware of God, passionately following after God, powerfully living in God, and currently, he's not being that kind of person at all. Which is why then one night he can't sleep, walks around the roof, sees something he shouldn't see. At this point, it's not clear that anyone has done much of anything wrong. Though in retrospect, it would have been better for him not to have been on the roof that night. If only it had stopped there. But he sends someone to find out more about her. 
If only it had stopped there. Then he gets the full report. If only it had stopped there. But then he has her sent for, and it all goes downhill from there. As soon he's trying to kill Uriah. It's even worth noting that at an earlier point in the story of 1 Samuel, this is one of the ways that Saul tries to kill David. This is something right out of Saul's playbook. Saul is trying to get rid of David, and he gets this idea, you know what, David, if you want to marry my daughter, you need to go kill 200 Philistines, thinking to himself, because surely if David goes against 200 Philistines, he's going to get killed, except it's David, and so he prevails. But now we see David using the same tactic to cover up his own sin. Remember, David is supposed to be a different kind of king than Saul. God has rejected Saul. God has chosen David. David, you're going to do this differently. Except right now, David's doing exactly what Saul did. Much more than that, we notice that David isn't paying any attention to God. We notice David isn't being the king he's called to be. We notice that David is simply distant from God and moving in the wrong direction until God through Nathan brings him back. So what do we do with this? How does this terrible story help us? Maybe the real issue that we need to recognize is that our struggle against temptation and sin is often really about something that is off inside of us, as we aren't being who we've been called to be, as we aren't focusing on God the way we're supposed to, as we've lost our longing for God. Instead, we think we want all these lesser things. We focus on all these lesser things. We, we go after all these lesser things instead of pursuing God who brings us so much more, which then creates that separation that we call sin. What if we could learn to want God more? What if, we could, what if we could focus on God better? What if we could learn to long for God? Would that change everything? There's a psalm that is often read during the season of Lent. It's Psalm 51. We read it in uh, Ash Wednesday, I think was the service. It, it's, it's a psalm that David writes after this incident. And, and he begins by crying out for forgiveness. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. But then in verse 10 he says this. And this is important. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit 
within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. That starts to sound like the David we know. That starts to sound like the man after God's own heart. But do you hear what he's saying there? He's not asking for more strength or less temptation. He's asking for a changed heart. He's asking for a renewed spirit. He's asking for a restored joy. May may I find my joy in your salvation not all these other things. He's asking to be closer to God. David strives to move closer to God as God has already moved closer to him. David is trying to be the kind of person that he has been made to be, that he's been called to be. David is working on what's inside now in order to change what gets lived out on the outside. I wonder, could we have our hearts recreated, our spirits renewed, our joy restored as we move closer to God and as we recognize God's closeness to us? Could we increase our awareness of and focus on God? And would that change things? Could we learn to love God more than all of those other things that we pursue? Maybe this is how God is hoping to move in us and change us. Maybe this is why God has come near in Jesus. Let us pray. Lord God, we don't like this story much. We don't like talking about mistakes. We don't like thinking about our own mistakes. Or we like that our mistakes are different than David's. So this story is fine because at least that's not what I'm struggling with. And yet, if we're being honest, we, we are struggling. We do struggle with temptation. We do want a lot of other things more than we want you. There are a lot of other things in our lives that draw our attention more than you draw our attention. But we pray that you would be working on our hearts. We pray that you would be purifying our hearts, renewing our spirits, restoring our joy in you, helping us be more aware that you have moved close that you are not just near, but you are here. And we pray that as we understand your love for us, that that would change us. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.